Welcome to Etc., the weekly podcast where we go beyond the talking points in politics, ethics, philosophy, religion, and pop culture in our pursuit of truth. My name is Beth Milligan. I'm a co-host of this podcast. And I'm Anthony Weber, and I am a co-host of this podcast. And Beth... It's been a year. It has. And I realized as I was reading the intro that weekly podcast (laughs) has not exactly applied to us. We've been on a little bit of a hiatus, a several-month hiatus, and lots has happened since then. That's because you and my, our lives are really important. Yes. We have so many big things going on. We're very popular, (laughs) very busy people. So you guys should be grateful that we're doing this at all. No, we've definitely had a long break, but I'm hoping in 2020, there's obviously been a lot happening this year. We'll get back on a more regular schedule. And it's seems like reading the news that there will be a lot happening here very quickly internationally with politics. I mean, there always is, but if this thing with Iran escalates, there could be a lot to talk about. For sure. And so we had just been chatting a little bit before we started recording, and there's been a lot, um, as Anthony mentioned, you know, we could be potentially on the brink of a war with Iran. We don't really know what's going to happen with that situation, but certainly we're heading into a huge election year. So there's a lot of political discussion going on, and we've been um, sharing some articles and talking a lot about um, Trump and about um, some of the, for example, the Christianity Today editorial, a lot of things that have been sort of intersection intersecting between politics and religion, which are two things we like to talk about a lot. And we thought we would catch up on some of what we've missed maybe recently today. Yeah, and a recent, I believe it was a Pew study that was looking at religious trends in the United States. And it's been trending down for a while, and the trend is definitely continuing. And the gap between millennials and older generations is increasing, if anything, I think. Yeah. And the article that I saw was pretty detailed, but it seems to be pretty consistent. We are becoming a less religious and a less Christian nation. And one of the questions that comes to my mind is, why is that? Mm-hmm. Some nations trend one way, some trend the other uh, what is happening in the last, I don't know if it's the last 20 years or so that's been starting to go down, mm-hmm. but it doesn't seem to be slowing. And I'm I'm wondering the, about the factors that go into that. I had some interesting response when I posted it on Facebook, and I've been having some meetings this week where I talk with some other people, particularly people who are millennials, and asking them, what do they see happening? And it turns out a lot of them are also either leaving the church or very frustrated with the church and might not necessarily be walking the faith away from the faith, but are walking away from organized religion for sure. Yeah, and I think I would fall into that category. I think mm-hmm. we've talked about that, you know, just in our friendship and on the podcast. To give folks a little bit of context, I'm looking at this article that Anthony was talking about, and just this will kind of give you a sense of there's a lot of statistics you could dig into this article. Maybe we'll try to link to it on Facebook or in the show notes, but. In this Pew Research Center, which is an independent organization, they were saying that 65% of American adults describe themselves as Christians when they're asked particularly about their religion, which is down 12 percentage points over the past decade. Meanwhile, the group of the population who identifies as atheist, agnostic, or nothing in particular in terms of their religious identity is now at 26%, whereas in 2009 it was at 17%. And... If I understand the article correctly, that 65% that identifies as Christian, that's just the interviewer taking their word for it. They're not asking them to even define what do you mean. Sure. Just a broad, I mean, anything, I'm sure like Catholic, Protestant, you know, whatever, a lot of people just would say that vaguely. Um, I think when you're asked specifically, do you have a religion, Mm -hmm. a Christian is kind of default for a lot of particularly white Americans. 
Um, but it is no, it is notable. I think that that you know going down twelve percentage points, whereas the um, the atheist or agnostic or nothing in particular has gone up almost the same percentage points. So mm. that's just in the last ten years. And you had said on your Facebook, I thought this was an interesting point that a lot of religious families tend to have more children, mm-hmm. and you would think then that the church would be growing. So the fact that they're having more kids but still having less of a population, I thought was a really interesting point that you brought up. Yeah, I think it implies that. That um, it's there's a significant shift of children moving out of church. I guess you could argue it could be older people too, but either way, you would expect the population to be growing simply because of large families, and in spite of the large families, it's shrinking. They have a retention problem. And if have, you looked yes. at the some of the graphs in this article, it's like Christianity is kind of like a sad trombone sound <laughs> just over the last <laughs> just going down a little bit. Still strong, but definitely a, a decrease that I think religious you know leaders might be concerned about. Or it's a good question to ask the church why yeah. that's happening. I I wonder, and I don't know if this will move us right now into the Christianity Today discussion or not, but. One of the things I have noticed is that when I talk with other pastors about what they see happening culturally and politically, I find that most pastors are in agreement and that they are very concerned about what they're seeing. And I think it's sharply at odds with the majority of their congregations. My sense is, yeah, my, my sense is that pastors uh, are, mm, they're frustrated, mm-hmm. they're discouraged, They don't quite understand how to navigate this new reality with, especially with the emergence of Trump as the face of the Republican Party, which in some ways becomes then the face of conservatism, which, because of the large evangelical voting bloc, becomes a face of evangelicalism, whether you chose that or or expected that to happen or not. And most pastors I talk to, they don't know what to do with it. Mm -hmm. And one interesting thing about Christianity today is that Christianity Today is a magazine that tends to be read more by pastors or seminarians, people in leadership type positions in the church, more so than the average churchgoer. Okay. And I suspect the editorial that C.T. penned reflects far more of church leadership than people think, hmm. but obviously, based on its response, it really touched a nerve with the average churchgoer. Hmm. Interesting. So do you have any, since you mentioned that you'd heard these concerns from other pastors, do you have any instincts yourself of why that decline might be happening? Uh, Okay, I'll give some ideas and then you give yours. So I'll I'll give mine as kind of insider information. Yeah, you might have a better sense of the pulse. I don't know. Well, I don't know. (laughs) I I think you and I have two different pulses on the (laughs) same body, if that's possible. I don't know. Yeah, that's a good metaphor. Yeah, that's clever. (laughs) Uh, So I would say one thing is that I think Christianity in some ways, and this might sound odd, became too easy. Interesting. Okay. In, In that... And you and I have talked about this before. Christianity was never meant to flourish as a religion that had power. And it was never meant to flourish as a religion that brought comfort and ease. In fact, the Bible constantly warns about this. It's part of what goes with the dangers of riches. And and that is it'll distract you from other things. You've got everything you want at your fingertips. And so why would you need anything including God? Mm -hmm. So there's a verse of Proverbs. I believe it's Proverbs where person who wrote it says, uh, God, I pray you don't give me too much money so I forget you, but don't give me too little money so that I curse you. <laughs> so I, I think there's always been something of a sweet spot. Mm-hmm. And because America has been so economically successful, 
And even if you live, uh, other than some places with real abject poverty in the United States, even if you are in the lower class, you're better off than what percentage of the world. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's it's remarkable. Mm-hmm. Um, that's, and that's not to overlook hardships, but just in comparison to the globe. And I suspect that Christianity has become a religion of comfort and of ease. Mm. And it's it won't stick like that, in my opinion, and it won't grow like that. And if nothing else, I think it can actually discourage people because I think fundamentally... People want something that will cost them their life, hmm. something that matters, something that um, at the end of the day it hurts to engage in it. And this could be for any kind of cause. So if you're someone who really believes that the environment is a crucial thing, it's it's probably meaningful to the degree that it's costly. Hmm. You give money to something. You reorganize your life so that you can recycle you do all these kinds of things. You want to be called to something that demands nobility of you. And I think, for one, I think that's how Islam has been rising around the world, is that they demand of their recruits, you may have to give your life. This is radical Islam, not all Islam. Sure. But part of their success, specifically in Europe, is that they go to disenfranchised youth generally in immigrant communities that have not been assimilated into the new culture. And they will tell them, we have something that will make your life matter hmm. because they're often jobless. Um, they, uh, there's lots that go with that. I remember talking with someone who had lived in the Middle East for a while about this. But, but the recruits go to them and say, we will make your life matter. It might cost you everything. might even cost you your life. And the youth follow them in droves. Hmm. And I think one of the big things that's happened internally in the church is that it's become a church that promised comfort. Prosperity gospel is the most obvious form of this. But it's also, you say, listen, if you come to Christ, um, you'll always have peace. You'll always have joy. It'll solve your marriage. It'll help you make your kids love you. It'll, and there's this whole list of things but that's not actually the promise of Scripture. Mm-hmm. Uh, it offers something very different and I think more profound. But when that becomes the expectation, I, I think people look at it and go, I can get most of these things from a self-help book and from a counselor. I don't have to reorganize my life. Mm-hmm. Uh, I can go do this somewhere else. So I, my sense, Beth, is that the church has shot itself in the foot by not being costly enough, by not demanding that if people are going to say that they follow Jesus, they reorganize their life in such a way that it reflects that. And if they do that, it will cost them something. Hmm. So you don't try to entertain people into the church, um, much like Jesus did. He winnowed his crowds more often than not. Uh, he'd be like, hey, if you want to follow me, there's this thing you'll have to do, and thousands of people would leave, and the disciples would get frustrated. Right. He they, didn't have, like, a boy band worship right, band right. in a, in a yeah. pool room. and Yeah, right, exactly. There, there's one point where he's talking <laughs> to the disciples, and he's talking about marriage, and he's like, yeah, you shouldn't get divorced. So one of the disciples goes, basically, how's it possible for anybody to do this? Like, he said things to his own disciples that made them want to leave. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, I don't know. My sense as a pastor is that um, what the church needs to regain internally, this would be part one, and sorry, I'm talking a long time here. No, it's great. Is this step-up kind of mentality. Mm -hmm. Um, And then what would go with that is with a return to using the Bible as our text 
for analyzing life rather than using CNN or Fox News or the Washington Post or the Washington Times. I'm convinced more and more people in the church are thinking politically first Mm -hmm. rather than biblically. So the dilemma that creates within the church is that if I, for example, want to get up and talk about immigration, the minute I talk about immigrants and refugees, a lot of people in the congregation hear Republican or Democrat talking points. Mm -hmm. But that's not actually what I'm trying to do as a pastor. What I'm trying to ask is, is there a biblical way to think about how we ought to, as individuals in a nation, treat immigrants and refugees? And if something that I have to say overlaps with Republican or Democrat talking points, that's not because I'm Republican or Democrat. It's because I'm trying to be faithful to Scripture. Mm-hmm. Okay, now name the issue. What should I do with environmentalism? What does stewardship of the earth look like, to use biblical language? What do I do with issues of marriage, sex, and the family? What do we do with poverty? What do we do with... You can go down the list. And until the until Christians can stop thinking politically first and simply uh, think, or, or the first question they ask is, what does the Bible have to say about this? And then they can say, all right, where can I go culture that aligns with this? Mm-hmm. Until we can make that hurdle, I, I don't know. And I, I think that's what's pushing a lot of people away is that, The lens they experience in churches is a Republican or Democrat lens. So this is no longer about the Bible, apparently. This is about a party. Mm -hmm. And I think that's very off-putting to people. Okay, that was my long explanation. I'm I'm curious what your take is on it. (laughs) That's great. I think, think, yeah, as kind of more of an outsider now, I think I agree with that. And I think there are two things that stand out to me. One, I think there is a very strong disconnect between what the Bible says and what I see practice in a lot of churches, as you were saying. So, you know... And to clarify for our audience, you are someone who has spent a lot of time in churches. You're... Yeah, I've got the WANA Awards. I can quote the scriptures. (laughs) Because I know sometimes people will say, when I hear people outside the church criticize the church, I'm like, they don't know what they're talking about. But you, you've had a significant portion of your life that was in a church community you know of what you speak. Carry on. <laughs> Thank you. I appreciate that qualifier. <laughs> and I should. And I still love the gospel. I still love the message of Christ. And I think if it wasn't so politically combative, I m- might even call myself a Christian. But it's just a really, it's a difficult label to wear at this point in my life and at this point in our country. But so to give, you know, your example of taking a topic like immigration, instead of saying, you know, what are the Republican talking points, what are the Democratic talking points, to go to what does the Bible say, I think there are, you know, a lot of verses in the Bible that talk pretty clearly about how to treat the stranger and the foreigner and the widow and the orphan. And and so what I think is interesting is when you preach those things and, you know, let's say more Republicans just because the Republican Party is a little bit more is more aligned with evangelical Christianity right now. If you're sitting in a church and you hear your pastor preaching about immigration from the Bible and saying, these are the scriptures, this is what Jesus teaches us, and it goes against what your political party is saying, why are you starting with your political party? (laughs) And why is that not making you rethink your political party, or at least parts of your political party? Why is it not making you challenge your party to be more reflective of who you are as a Christian instead of, you know, imposing the politics onto the Bible? That's the first thing that, like, at least made me go away is, you know, the short term for that is hypocrisy. But I don't throw the term hypocrisy against Christians in the sense that I expect every Christian to live a perfect life. 
Right. I don't think that any of us can do that, and that's not how... That's not my standard for Christians. I don't think you're a hypocrite if you sin. What I'm looking for is the journey and the arc of people and the kind of consistent message. What what are they trying for? What are they aiming for? What does their behavior say? They might stumble sometimes, but what is kind of the progress that they're making? And I just got fed up with everything that I was hearing, and the church seemed so antithetical to what I was seeing in the Bible. And so I missed, when you talk about the second point I was going to make was you're talking about a cost. I do think people are hungry for meaning and a sense of purpose in their lives. And I do think the Christian message at its core has something to offer for that. Um, I would be, in a modern sense, I think a lot of people get scared that this means that they have to literally go live like Mother Teresa, or you have to like be literally beaten or literally jailed or do what the disciples did. And I don't think that that cost in a modern world is necessarily what you're being called to. What I would be interested in, in a church, is the call in our inner relationships, mm-hmm. in our community, in our careers. You know, it, it's hard to put another person before yourself, mm-hmm. you know, even just in a marriage or a partnership or a family. Those kind of sacrifices that uh, require self-discipline, putting down your pride, um, that are character-building, I want to live that kind of life. I'm interested in a message that teaches me to be a better person, mm-hmm. that says I have a meaning that is learning to to be a better person in this world and to give something of value. You always talk about stewardship, and I love that term because I could see my life as a gift. And what do I want my life to look like at the end? What have I done with the time that I've been given? So that message, I think, would resonate with a lot of these people that Pew is finding have left the church. They still say they're spiritual. It's mm-hmm. a term I've used. I heard my, t- my peers using it. It's that search for meaning. They want to do something. They want to be better people. For me, I found it more in like, I want to work with LGBTQ people because there's suffering there and there's injustice there. I want to work with immigrants. I want to work with people who are marginalized in the community. Mm-hmm. I see that reflected in Jesus. That's the kind of person he was. So that message is meaningful to me. It's just the way the church, and I, I use it loosely because some churches are doing a great job, but generally the 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 way the church is doing it doesn't reflect to me anything that's in the gospel. And that's why I'm leaving. It's not because the gospel itself isn't relevant or compelling anymore. It's because the church seems to have forgotten it. Well, if you go back to the early church, uh, the, the records would seem to indicate that the early church was characterized by exactly the things you're talking about, at least to those outside the church. They saw them helping everyone's poor, not just their own, they saw them helping everyone sick, not just their own. They saw them bringing in um, children who were often set out to die or orphans. The church brought in orphans. In fact, I know of a church right now in the Ukraine who um, they had a fairly large church, and every family in that church a couple years ago adopted an orphan in the Ukraine because wow. it's a huge problem. They're trying to replicate some of those ideas that there was a there was a sense that their presence in the community was going to be a life-changing community. Inside the church, then, they were busy creating a place that was built on the foundation of the gospel and yet filled with the marginalized of that time to the point where uh, outsiders to the church would often mock them Hmm. for the kind of people that went to their church. But that's what they did, and they had a tremendous impact. 
And somewhere along the line that got lost, and my suspicion is that might have started with Constantine, just because suddenly Christianity got power. Mm -hmm. And like I said before, it just never seems to end well. It doesn't, yeah. Yeah. Any period in the church where you can think of where things went really bad. Yeah. And and even we've talked, we've, I think just in our Facebook thread, maybe not in the show because it's been a few months, but, you know, there have been a lot of uh, high profile, disgraced Christian leaders, um, you know, kind of pop culture speakers, popular touring speakers, whatever it might be. A lot of Christian leaders have had some pretty significant uh, scandals. Mm-hmm. And that's the other downside of power is that if you elevate yourself on a platform, then the standard is going to become even much more high for how you behave. Mm-hmm. And if you fall from that, it's it's not only your disgrace is more public and visible, but you've taken the church with you. And it's another danger of accumulating power, I think, that, that you then have to be that much more cautious that anything that you do is reflective for millions of people, potentially, of, of what's going to happen mm-hmm. to the faith. But well, we, we see it locally with a couple stories that have yeah. happened with leaders and churches here. And part of what I hear as I talk with people is that people are dropping out of church as a result of this. And for many it was, I was burned before, I gave it another chance, and now I'm done. Mm-hmm. And they weren't telling me that they were walking away from the Christian faith, but they were done with the organized side of it which, biblically speaking, is supposed to be a really big deal. Yeah. <laughs> like, the church community is supposed to be foundational. And, yeah, the disillusionment wasn't with the gospel. The disillusionment was with the bearers of the gospel. And like you said, there has to be room for imperfection. Mm-hmm. But I don't. you and I aren't talking about that. We're, we're talking right. about something much more significant. Than pa- that. Patterns or, yeah, <clears throat> yeah trajectory of, of where you're going. You haven't, have you seen Two Popes yet? Not yet. Okay. So I just want to do this plug on this because I love this movie so much. But they have conversations. It's about the transition from um, Pope Benedict to Francis. One of the, they have, the whole movie is them having wrestling with faith and the idea of God. And they have very, one is very traditionalist, Catholic about God, and one is kind of more progressive. Francis is more progressive. And one of the conversations they have is about the message of the gospel and, you know, Benedict is saying, you're giving, you know, sacrament to the divorced and to people, you know, in the church that are not supposed to be in the church. And, you know, Francis is encouraging him to modernize. And Benedict is saying, no, God is timeless. He never changes. And and Francis is saying, he's, he's always changing. He's, he's with us. And then Benedict says, well, where do you find them then if he's always changing? And Francis says, you find him on the journey. So they're talking about, you know, sort of the timelessness of the gospel. And he also, there's also this conversation about where he says, you know, the sacrament is not a reward for the virtuous, it's food for the starving. And mm. and then there's a conversation about having walls around the church. And Benedict says, you know, walls are good. They protect our people. We need to know who we are. We need to be protected, essentially. And Francis said, you know, look at Jesus. He was always tearing down walls. And mercy is the dynamite that blows up walls. So there's just these two really different stances that I I see reflected not just in the Catholic Church, but in many churches where, and this maybe we could segue into talking about Trump, Mm -hmm. 
where I, I hear a lot of, and it, I will be honest, it's a lot of times from older, more traditional uh, conservative Christians, where they're very fearful of this, this message being diluted, that somehow the gospel of Christ is being diluted for millennials, or we're trying to water it down by allowing gays in the church, or we're somehow compromising the word of God. And then on the other side of it, I think younger people particularly are hungry for the message of the gospel, but they believe it applies to everyone. And they believe the traditional church has been too exclusionary and is too rigid. And so I see that dynamic playing out a lot Mm -hmm. in the church. And I think Trump has brought it out to the fore even more. What do you think of this idea? I'm not going to try analogy again because my last one just feel bad. <laughs> Two pulses, one body. <laughs> uh, uh, what do you think of this idea that for the Christian, there's this message of the gospel and it can get distorted by the left or the right. So watered down or diluted is what people often say with the left. But I would say, even if you think of the right leaning motion or movement, it might not even be diluted as hyper uh, concentrated that's not see i tried to make an analogy again and it didn't work who are the but, in the gospel who are the the people that jesus is always the pharisees. the pharisees yeah, yeah. it's like your lips say my name but your heart is yeah. far from me it's like a, the law above the spirit yeah right and even jesus says about the law i actually came to fulfill it mm-hmm. not destroy it but you guys are doing a terrible job and he says to the pharisees you're actually making disciples of hell which you don't hear many people called out like that today <laughs> Uh, but, but yes, there was distortion. And if you go into the Jewish community at the time, I mean, the Pharisees and the Sadducees were in some ways very different, almost a left-right polarization theologically and politically. And Jesus doesn't look at either one and go, I'm with you. Hmm. They both had allowed distortions to creep in that were undermining the message of the gospel. And that's what I would see happening today when the church aligns itself too closely with the political party. I think either direction is going to introduce a distortion. Hmm. And even if one party is has a greater number of issues that you would say, okay, are these are biblical. It's that it's the kind of we'll call it a radicalization where it's an all or nothing. My party do or die. I am with them with everything they do. Okay, you just can't take that. That's going to take you in really weird directions. Because mm-hmm. those are what I would call empire parties, not kingdom parties. <laughs> and empire parties will never line up with kingdom ideals. They might to some degree, but that's where you've got to be careful and you've got to be discerning. And it's why, for me, I have a very t- hard time associating myself officially with parties of empire. Mm-hmm. Because I feel like both of them will compromise me on something that I don't want to be compromised on. Yeah. And we had talked about, so we mentioned earlier that Christianity Today editorial, which caused this huge, you know, uproar. Um, And you were mentioning it seemed to be more, uh, maybe people who aren't reading Christianity Today every day, but kind of like the concept of what it stands for. Mm -hmm. I mean, by its very title, it seems to represent this is what modern Christianity (laughs) is. So this is is the stance (laughs) of the church as it is. And of course, if you are a Christian and you did disagree with that editorial, which basically said Trump should be removed from office and called out kind of his moral failings. Then there were a lot of people who were like, hey, you don't speak for me, Christianity Today. There was a follow-up article to that that I shared with you that we talked a little bit before we started recording, but 
where they were talking with the editor who had written that editorial, and he talked about the response um, from critis- from from Christians, and he mentioned specifically how Trump is teaching a lot of evangelicals who are Trump supporters how to respond to things. And so when the editorial first came out, he was getting tweeted by Christians who were saying, um, yeah, your magazine is Christianity yesterday, or you're a dying magazine. I mean, that is something that Trump said constantly, mm-hmm. you know, the failing New York Times. Mm-hmm. That's a very Trump response. And so he says they're taking their cues on how to react in the public square from Donald Trump, whose basic response to most things is to denigrate people. Not what a Christian response right. is supposed to be yeah. to anything. And when I, when I thought about, I have struggled so much, and I know you and I have talked about this, but I struggle so much of why do so many Christians love Trump and and not to use mixed metaphors here, but why is it a hill they're willing to die on? This guy, the most anti-Christian leader, I'm sorry that I've seen in a president in a long time. What, why is it, what is it about him? And what I was talking with you a little bit earlier is I think they a lot of Christians feel like they're finally winning, that they finally have a guy in there, a guy who's their guy, their, their champion. He's if not living a Christian lifestyle, he is saying the right words to win a Christian audience. And it feels like maybe for some people in the church that they're winning for once and, and they've, they've got a guy. And my problem with that is that one, everything he says and does is not reflective of the gospel. Uh, but two, it goes back to the power thing that you and I talking about. I don't think Christians are supposed to be winning. I don't think that's what we are. I'm going to put myself in this category now. That's what we're supposed to focus on. I think it's okay to care about a good economy. I think it's okay to care about secure borders. But if that's not the most important thing, and that's certainly not what the Bible emphasizes as the priorities in our life. So if we have a wealthy nation that is completely secure and cut off from the rest of the world, do we just sit in our moral rot in our self-protected kingdom on a hill and not interact with the outside world? Again, that doesn't seem to me Christ-like. I want a country that's engaging and has strong moral leadership. I don't. I think that's more important than just what the stocks are doing or mm. how secure our borders are. So, I want to let you respond to that. But I think that was my. I've been struggling for three years with people around me that I really care about supporting Trump, and I didn't get why. And I felt like, okay, maybe I understand why that you finally feel like you've got someone in office, but have you picked the right horse? And what is it saying about your religion and your faith that this is your guy? I read an article a couple months ago called He Fights was the title of it. And it was showing up on my social media feeds that a lot of my conservative friends were sharing this. And I forget who wrote it and where it was published, but it was published in a popular conservative online magazine. And the basic argument was this. We have had Republican leadership who have tried to be nice And they have all failed. So now it's time for us to fight on the terms of those we're fighting against, which would be the left or Democrats. And so it's time for the gloves to come off. And Trump is the guy who takes the gloves off and fights. And they even mentioned in the article that he's using Saul Alinsky's playbook. So this was a famous thing amongst conservatives when Obama was in office. Saul Alinsky, in his book, um, oh, something for revolutionaries or radicals was the title of it. He, he says in there, this is what you need to do to take control. 
And in the opening, the conservative claim was that he dedicated the book to Lucifer. He didn't actually, though he references Lucifer and calls him, I think, the ultimate rebel or radical or something like that. And the author of this article actually said, it's time for us to start doing that. If this is what it takes to win, to use the strategy of Lucifer, so to speak, let's do it. It's time. Hmm. And I had Christian friends posting this. And so my immediate response was, why would you, are, are you legitimately saying that you now think the stakes are so high? that you fight with what you believe to be the tools of Lucifer and it's justified. Mm-hmm. Where, where did this come from? How is this possible? But it was this idea that we have tried to take the high road and be people of integrity. In essence, it didn't work. So now we will not be mm-hmm. because the price, the stakes are so high. And in, in, in that scenario that you're describing, like, I guess I don't understand. What do people mean when they say we failed until now and we need to win? Like, what are you trying to win in that scenario? Political wins See, so I, that you can, like, outlaw abortion? Like, I'm trying to understand, like, what winning means to Christians now. That's a really good question. I, certainly part of it has to do with abortion. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay, so I would say there's three key things. I just finished a book on religious liberty, uh, and I don't remember the title of it, so... I'll put a link, link on our, Yeah, say yeah, link yeah. in the show notes. Um, by a lawyer who worked for the Beckett Foundation. And he pointed out the three areas that tend to really galvanize people. Um, and that is abortion, uh, same-sex marriage, and religious f- and freedom. The ability, to, And actually, those last two tie in together pretty closely. Like, will same-sex marriage begin to infringe on the, the baker, the photographer? Sure. The pat, right. So those were the big three things. Okay. So I think... For the conservative Christian Trump voter, part of the winning is we need to address abortion. So that would be justices, which Trump has nominated a lot of justices Mm -hmm. um, on the federal level for sure. And then the other thing would be, will we be protected from uh, our government telling us what we have to do in situations typically involving same-sex marriage? Mm -hmm. I think those are the big two. The whole thing with immigration and refugees, I don't know. That one still puzzles me, Beth, because I did a little research on this, and it wasn't that long ago, 10 years ago. Both evangelicals and conservatives were deeply concerned about what was happening at the border and wanting to bring in um, refugees and immigrants. I mean, they were still concerned about the borders, but they they were looking at the human trauma and wondering how we could help. I actually found in 2009, the National Association of Evangelicals issued a statement on immigration. So 11 years ago, and they said, border security is a concern, but this is a humanitarian crisis, and we ought to be doing what we can. That was the evangelical statement 11 years ago. Hmm. And so I don't quite know how that one got pulled in, other than I think there's a lot of lying about the dangers that immigrants um, expose us to. The, the other winning, I think, comes back to my thing of comfort. Mm-hmm. That th- this idea that I want to be able to go into a store and have everyone there say to me, Merry Christmas. Right. Okay. A, a that's <laughs> ludicrous. But that that is actually a big talking point right. at holidays. The war and, on Christmas. And I don't understand it. And you and I have talked about this before. There's no war on Christmas. But who cares if someone won't say happy, Merry Christmas to me? Who cares if Starbucks does whatever cup they want to do? But I I think it brings us back to the comfort issue. We've had a long time where we've been very comfortable. Mm -hmm. And now it's not as comfortable anymore. And I think that's part of the winning. 
Yeah. I do wonder, I mean, the, the population shift nationally is also changing. You know, we're, I think I just seen, I'll, I'll check and send a link to you because I like to be sure to fact check this, but it can put it in the show notes, but that we are just had the first like generation born that's, um, has a higher non-white majority than white. So by mm. 2050, we're going to be a predominantly non-white country. The mm. majority for the first time in our country is still be non-white other than when we had indigenous cultures here. Um, okay, so here would be another area of pushback. Yeah. And that is, I think, a sense among many of us white folk in general, but I think it's also true amongst um, the evangelicals. Or actually, I'm just going to say the Trump voter base, and we'll explain why I don't want to see evangelical in that in a minute. Okay. Um, a sense that a white people, and often men, have been unfairly vilified culturally. Mm-hmm. Um, that the Me Too movement, it, even though it has its valid points, this would be the argument, it throws all men under the bus. Mm-hmm. And now it says all men are toxic when that's not true, only some men are. Um, it would suggest that white people have privilege, and that comes out of this um, identity theory, racial, shoot, I can't remember the name of it now. Uh, it'll come back to me as soon as you start talking. But there's this strong leftist movement to try to, in essence, vilify anyone who was not in a a minority position. And that's not fair because we're not all villains. We're not responsible for what our ancestors did and different things like that. And so I think part of the winning is having a government in place or having a cultural power structure in place that stops the vilification of white people and of men. Mm -hmm. Now, to whatever degree you think that's fair or not, I think that would be the argument. Mm -hmm. No, I think, I think that's fair. And yeah. And I, and I think to tie that into the population numbers that I was just mentioning is that I think you do have more multiculturalism. You do have more awareness of how um, minority groups have suffered, whether it is the gay population or black population or whatever. There's more sensitivity. There's more cultural awareness, the kind of woke culture. I understand some of the pushback about that becoming too PC or too extreme. Mm -hmm. But I will say it's a pretty short period of time in which we've had some enlightenment about these issues and hundreds of years in which we've treated these people like crap. (laughs) So I don't think, I mean, maybe the pendulum swing is going to take a little while to get in the middle where it needs to be. But I think it's better to be erring on the side of us being culturally sensitive and awake Mm -hmm. than to now be like, well, now we're talking too much about minority cultures. When are we going to get back to the whites? You know, it's like, let's just everyone take a breath. It's been about the whites for just about since the beginning of time. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. All I was going to say was that I think with all that heightened awareness and all of a sudden you can't just make whatever racist joke you want to at the country club and, you, right. you know, you can't do these things, that there's a sort of put out percentage of the population that is sort of like crossing their hands like, well, this isn't fun and I didn't mean anything by it and I'm misunderstood and I'm not the bad guy, like you said. Instead of, you know, maybe part of that would just be... Um, some self-reflection and uh, maybe it's okay to not make racist jokes anymore. I know you're all your buddies thought they were hilarious on the golf course in the past, but maybe we don't have to do that anymore. It's not real suffering compared mm-hmm. to what minorities are going through. And so for me, I get like a little, a little frustrated by it. And I think you're exactly on point that I think Trump represents something that is going back to 
he he's not PC. He says whatever he wants. Right. That's a guy we want. We want a guy who tells it like it is, and he can say racist things because they're funny or because they're true, and he's not afraid to just tell it like it is. And I get that that's empowering to a certain amount of people. I just I would think I would gently push back on those people to say, should that be empowering? Should you just be able to say and live and do whatever you want regardless of the repercussions for other people or the awareness of the suffering of other people, particularly if you call yourself a Christian. Yeah, I would ask, is it empowering people to speak truth or, it is, or is it empowering people to be obnoxious? Hmm. Those are two very different things because I'm certain that Trump could make the same claims that he makes in a way that is not obnoxious. Mm-hmm. And we could still argue about whether all the claims are true or not, but they don't have to be confrontational or combative. Just like for someone to post about Christianity Today, oh, it's Christianity Yesterday, failed magazine. Why can't you just say, I strongly disagree with Christianity Today? Right. You. That's basically what you're saying but in both cases, but in one, you're not mocking yeah. and you're not belittling. Mm-hmm. And that, I think, I have no problem with Trump being more unpolished, say, than Obama or Clinton were. Um, To me, it's more like you could be an unpolished like George Bush was. I was going to say, you can be plain spoken. (laughs) I know George Bush gets made fun of for being an idiot a lot. I did not like George Bush, but he's not an idiot. No. He was a smart politician and a smart man he he got a little southern draw but he was just he was just plain spoken yeah you know and certainly more so than (laughs) i I saw him here in traverse city oh yeah and i was astonished at how good of a public speaker he was because i had mostly seen clips Mm -hmm. and they always made me nervous like i was like oh i don't know how this is gonna go he was astonishingly good live i mean he certainly put his foot in his mouth many times but i do think i think he gets um ribbed for that unnecessarily so you're right I don't have a problem with every um, president not being a perfect orator, but yeah. but in this case, that's not what we're talking about with Trump. We're yeah. talking about a consistent pattern of denigrating and abusive behavior, complete lack of respect yeah. and narcissistic behavior. Yeah, I was listening, listening to a podcast called The Holy Post, with one of the people on the podcast being a former writer for Christianity Today. His argument is that we have now confused evangelical with fundamentalist. Hmm. And that Christianity Today, in publishing their article about removing Trump, is publishing something very consistent with their history. They also um, were for the removal of Nixon and Clinton. Hmm. But it's consistent with evangelical history. They're an evangelical magazine. Hmm. Uh, it ought to surprise no one they took that stance is, in essence, the argument. What's happening is that there are a lot of fundamentalists now claiming the evangelical umbrella, and they're angry that evangelicals are not fundamentalists, hmm. but they're not. Hmm. So that's why I would say I wonder if Trump's voting base is more fundamentalist than evangelical. The way you describe it, I would just think yes off the yeah. top of my head. Yeah. But, and my little recount of history there, Beth, there's a lot more nuance to that, and I'm painting with very broad strokes. Sure. But I wasn't even aware of the the very real hostility between those two camps. Hmm. And in some ways, it still exists. Um, I, I don't want to get off in the weeds on that. But. Yeah. Well, I think that's super interesting. And I, I think for a lot of people, 
you know, especially if you're listening to this, it's kind of Christian inside baseball. Um, even for me growing up in it, I, I didn't really think about the difference between those two terms. But it certainly, I could say, describes two different attitudes that I see within the current church. I, I can definitely see that fundamentalist attitude that you're talking about. And maybe that is where a lot of my um, criticism or ire is for Christianity more than evangelicalism. Unfortunately, like you said, they have now been completely conflated. And I mentioned this I think we talked about this a little bit before the show, but to me it's really interesting because a lot of Christians do not want to be compared to Islam, <laughs> don't like Islam in general, very suspicious of Muslims. Um, but I see parallels between those religions where the fundamentalist um, elements of those religions have come to negatively define the faith to the outside world. And I think that is a challenge that those faiths need to solve for themselves because the bad messaging is turning a lot of people off to the um, the kind of core message of that faith. And the people who are more moderate within those communities are now getting lumped in with the fundamentalists mm -hmm. and are being characterized and sort of relegated to the side in the same way that those they are. And so I guess I would encourage the same way Muslims have said, hey, wait, we're not all terrorists. We're not all suicide bombers. Like, please stop lumping us in with the most extreme elements of our faith. Then a lot of people have pushed back on Muslims and said, well, then you need to get your house in order. You need to deal with the fundamentalists in mm -hmm. your church and either, you know, be more active in calling them out or dealing with them. But yes, you're all being lumped together. Then I would say the same thing to Christianity. If you've got fundamentalist elements that are defining your faith in a way that is pushing people out of the church, then that needs to be called out. I mean, I can understand... I know not all all camps of the church are going to agree, and maybe there'll be some splintering off. But I've, you know, as even in some of the threads that we've talked about on Facebook, I've said this to some Trump Christian supporters. I don't, I'm not trying to always pick fights, but my thing is, what you say and how you act is so different from what I see the gospel as being that. I think you need a new name for what you are. It's mm -hmm. okay if you want to support Trump and you want to win, and that's it's now about political winning and trying to overturn Roe v. Wade or whatever it is. That's your most important priority, fine. But then that sect of Christianity needs a different name because that is not the priorities and the message that I see in the gospel. And I think Christians should be fighting to defend that label to some extent if it's being redefined for them by more extremist elements. I wonder if that redefinition will be drawing sharper lines again between evangelical and fundamentalist. Yeah, maybe it is. And maybe, because before you mentioned this in this podcast, I, I hadn't really heard much conversation yeah, about that. But I, I, see, neither. I see those two separate camps now when you say it. And, and in fact, think of it this way as well. So evangelicals and fundamentalists would both see the prevailing culture as something to be challenged in some fashion, mm -hmm. because the gospel is always going to be countercultural. But I, I think, and once again, I'm going to paint with a very broad brush, Evangelicals have tended to say we will challenge the culture by serving the culture. Hmm. And in our service, like I, I'll say at the early church, in our service, they will see our lives motivated by the love of Jesus, which motivates us to love others in return. So we will, we will challenge the cultural status quo by serving the culture. Sacrificial love. Sacrificially. I think fundamentalism, at least over time, has developed into something that says we will challenge the culture by conquering the culture. Yeah, absolutely. And so, and that's a broad brush, um, and it doesn't even mean that I disagree with the core fundamentals because that term comes from, 
years ago, a clarification of fundamental things about Christian faith. Okay, I'm talking about the modern expression of it. And that's simply going to be worlds apart in how you approach everything. Both sides want to make Christ and the kingdom of the church compelling. Evangelicals think, like you said, it is made compelling by being a particular kind of people who embody the presence of Jesus in the world. And I think fundamentalism is going toward the direction that says, if we can create a society that reflects Christian morality, maybe then you'll understand why we think it's a big deal and why we think it's good and important. So I I think they both desire to make it compelling, but have radically different ways of approaching how they think it will happen. And I agree with you, Beth. I think the biblical ideal is... (laughs) is not coercion at all, but is, what was our other word? An invitation. An invitation. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, okay. I think we solved it once again. I think again. we did. <laughs> well, I know we're, I mean, this may be a good place to end for the first one I think one it is. This year. was a pretty long one already. Yeah, it was a good one. We'll uh, link to some of the things that we talked about in the show notes. Anthony always does such a nice job editing the show, putting it together, doing the show notes. I want to give him credit for that because he kind of makes it all come together. Stop. And. <laughs> And if you guys would like to interact with us, you can go to our et cetera Facebook page or et cetera dot, uh, blogspot.com and find us there. <laughs>